Hey, Corey, I've got a number for you. Oh, good. So we're, we're back to this gag then. Uh, it's been a while since we've done this. So what is it? 50. Jeez. All right. I already used the happy birthday joke uh, on a recent episode. So I don't know. Uh, is it your anniversary? Uh, no, it's not my anniversary. It's our anniversary. This is our 50th episode. Hey, that's awesome. And important because it's a chance to speak to two topics we've covered a lot recently. The shortage of affordable rental housing and pandemic impacts on the rental market. And today, we'll go further as we dig deeper into affordability and also explore renter assistance programs supporting renters now, reviewing the different ways they're being implemented and get some early reads on innovations and lessons learned. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenwoss. And this is going to be an especially important episode. Around this time every year, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition publishes a report called The Gap, a shortage of affordable and available homes. It's an important report every year, but it takes an extra interest this year as we think about the fallout from the pandemic. It's also important when considered in conjunction with the other research that NLIHC has been publishing recently on various uh, state implementations of the Treasury's Emergency Rental Assistance Program. This program is getting a lot of attention in the market for good reason, and uh, the coalition's work really helps us understand better how it's implemented across the country and what lessons can be taken from it so far. We're fortunate to have the lead author of The Gap with us today, Daniel Threet, as well as the lead author of the research on rental assistance, Rebecca Ye. So thank you both so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having us. Pleasure to be here. Before we get into rental assistance, let's set the stage with The Gap. Dan, tell us a little bit about what you study in The Gap, and then we'll go into detail on some of the findings and the data. Sure. So for um, any of your listeners who haven't seen it, the National Low Income Housing Coalition publishes The Gap uh, every year, which analyzes a one-year American community survey data with the aim of estimating the size of the shortage of affordable and available homes for the lowest income renters in the country. The shortage is a longstanding structural problem. The market on its own simply doesn't produce enough homes that are affordable for these renters. But you're absolutely right that it takes on a special importance this year as we're looking at an economic crisis that's been especially damaging for lower income households, and a public health crisis that makes having secure, affordable housing absolutely imperative. Looking at the 2019 data, so this is uh, during a period of time in which the economy was in comparative health, where we reached a 50-year low in unemployment, we still found that there were 10.8 million renter households across the country who could be classified as having extremely low incomes. Now that means uh, income, household incomes at 30% of area median income or the poverty guideline, whichever is higher. Those extremely low income renter households account for about a fourth of all renter households across the country and about 9% of all US households. Uh, to put some context on that, in many states, uh, the extremely low income threshold for a family of four would be about $26,000. Now, what we found when we analyzed the 2019 data was that for those 10.8 million uh, extremely low income renter households, there were approximately 7.4 million homes that were affordable to them. That is priced at a point that's aff affordable to someone at the ELI threshold. 
But that's not the whole story, because of those 7.4 million affordable homes, only 4 million are actually both affordable and available to them, which means that those homes were both affordable and either vacant or occupied by an extremely low income renter. That means that there is a shortage of nearly 7 million homes affordable and available to extremely low income renters. Another way of, of putting that would be to say something like, uh, there are only 37 affordable and available rental homes for every 100 extremely low income renter households. This is a, a pretty long-term problem. We, we've seen this uh, over the course of a number of years, um, but it's uh, perhaps all the more important this year as we're thinking about the ways in which uh, particularly low-income households have been affected by the pandemic. So, so before we get into that, let's let's just put uh, a little more historical perspective on this. So how does the gap today compare to, let's say, over the last 10 years? Is it pretty steady or does it, does it move up and down very, uh, based on different factors? That's a good question. We have seen some movement. We have uh, similar reports with comparable methodology uh, going back, I think, as early as, as 2006. Uh, and in 2006, there were approximately 40 affordable uh, and available homes for every 100 extremely low income renters. That number fell a bit in the wake of the Great Recession, as there was greater competition for those uh, affordable homes, and it, it gradually uh, increased back up to about 37 uh, between 2017 and 2019. So while there is some variation, you can note that that's still a pretty severe shortage, both in strong uh, periods of, of economic growth and during pretty severe recessions. And I think a, a, a notable point that I'll just repeat from from what you said was that uh, you know as you look at the at the lower end of the wage spectrum, the extremely low income households, that's that's twenty five percent of renter households. I think you said about a quarter, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, which which uh, I mean, I think it just speaks to the magnitude of the issue. Is there the, these are the households that are that are impacted where these numbers are falling so much short and uh, and it's at the national level and uh, and it goes beyond that too it's it's robust across the country is that right that's that's absolutely right there is some geographic variation across the country so uh, I think the shortage is least severe at the state level this year in in Mississippi and Wyoming where there were 61 affordable and available homes for every 100 extremely low income renters whereas it was most severe. Uh, in Nevada, which had 20 affordable and available homes for every 100 extremely low income renters. But it's still a, a pretty severe problem everywhere. At the, at the metropolitan level, we looked at the, the 50 largest metropolitan areas by renter population, and the supply ranged from just 16 for every 100 households in Las Vegas up to 50 in Providence. It's incredible that no state had an adequate supply of affordable rental housing for extremely low income renters. Um, and, and I think that's the, certainly um, the, the report documents how that's, that's the most impacted um, income group. Uh, and then, you know, even as you go up to, to median income, so instead of just a fraction of median income being a hundred percent of median income, uh, there's seven states that have a shortage for those renters. I think that that is just a, an incredible finding, and I think that we, this again is is pre-pandemic, right? These are this is data that's coming from 2019, and uh, and as the market, uh, you know, took so much stress, especially for low-income renters, um, it, this was a problem uh, 
a very meaningful problem um, across the country and and moving up the wage spectrum in some states. Right, right, a- absolutely. I, I think um, what you just pointed to the the shortage in those seven states for all renters up to median income is, is an important point because one of the things we see in the geographic variation is that the areas that are often highlighted in our conversations about housing on affordability are the areas with high cost metropolitan areas. So those seven states are California, Florida, New York, New Jersey, I think Hawaii, Oregon, um, Massachusetts. And so they all, all have some high cost metropolitan areas. Um, but the, the problem for the very lowest income renters is, is ubiquitous because as you, as you said, there isn't a st- any state in the union that has an adequate supply of affordable and available homes for those extremely low income renters. So why might you see cases like, um, you know, where you mentioned uh, Mississippi and Wyoming being uh, comparatively better off than than some other states? Why might you see that? That's a that's a good question, um, and I, I think um, part of that has to do with, with variation in um, the housing markets, variation in uh, incomes throughout the country. So in another report we we publish. Uh, every year uh, out of reach, which looks at uh, the gap between what um, workers earn, their median wages, and uh, the fair market rents, we also see uh, some similar patterns there, where uh, some states, particularly in the Deep South, have lower housing wages. That is, uh, a lower wage is necessary in order to be able to afford a fair market rent. Um, but at the same time, we see that the, the median wages that rent- renters earn in those states is lower as well. So there are a number of things that probably uh, impact um, why we would see um, cheaper rents in some areas. Certainly the case that uh, in places like uh, California, the, the sheer shortage of housing across the spectrum winds up affecting how many homes are uh, available for extremely low income renters. I think one part of that dynamic um, just comes out of the, the definition of availability, right? When we're talking about how many homes are available for extremely low-income renters, we're referring to the fact that uh, in the private market, it's uh, perfectly possible for someone to occupy a home that is cheaper than one that is at the, the limit of their budget threshold, right? Uh, and so where there is more competition for homes, we're going to see um, that there are fewer homes available for those extremely low-income renters, just as they they compete with other renters on the market. Now that makes a lot of sense, and and, and I think maybe just underscore it. You know, Wyoming being at you know, sixty-one, it's, it's still not over hundred. You know, it's, it's still not, uh, still not a great outcome. Absolutely, that that's still a severe shortage. Perhaps tied, uh, you, uh, you know, when when looking at the map, you have a uh, have in the gap, which is really helpful. Um, you know, there is some uh, some apparent uh, alignment between just high population concentration and, uh, you know, greater shortage. Right. I, I think that's undeniably true to, to some extent, yes. So the, the differences that are highlighted um, by geography are, are really meaningful. I think one that you highlight that's especially um, important this year and, and one that's highlighted um, every year, but maybe more so this year, is the, is the racial and ethnic disparities. I wonder if you could walk us through that a little bit. Certainly. I, I, I do think it's important to uh, center the racial and ethnic disparities in this problem because the housing uh, affordability problem for the lowest income renters is 
is disproportionately a problem for renters of color. I would expect that your listeners are, are probably already intimately familiar with the racial and ethnic disparities in, in home ownership uh, across the country. Although there was a, a really nice report by, um, I believe it was the, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition last month on the, the persistent black-white home ownership gap across the country. Uh, but your listeners might be less familiar with uh, the demographics of the lowest income renters, but it's the case that people of color are, are much more likely than white people to be uh, extremely low income renters. Uh, fully 20% of black households are extremely low income renters uh, compared to 6% of white non-Latino households. So when we're talking about the, the struggle for affordable housing at um, the lowest for the lowest income renters, um, this is disproportionately a problem for those renters of color. And I think that's thinking about how that impacts these households is is interesting. Um, when a when a household is forced to spend these these higher levels of their income, uh, higher proportions of their income on housing, that takes away from the ability to spend on other necessities like food and transportation. I think you guys look into that as well. Yes, that's that's really well put. Um, so if, if we have uh, just 37 affordable uh, and available homes for every 100 ELI renters, the question is what, what happens to those renters? And of course, that means that those who aren't able to obtain uh, an affordable home are forced into homes they can't afford. They're forced into situations of being housing cost burdened, spending more than 30% of their income on rent or being severely housing cost burdened, spending more than half of their income on rent. And housing cost burden is is predominantly a problem for the lowest income renters. Um, there are about 10 million renters in the country who are severely housing cost burdened uh, and fully 72% uh, of severely housing cost burdened renters have extremely low incomes. Now, as you said, when renters are severely cost burdened, that means they have to cut back on other necessities like transportation or education, food, healthcare, and the like. There was a really sobering report from uh, the University of Southern California a few months ago that found that 64% of cost burden renters cut back on food to pay for rent. Uh, and for many of those cutbacks are, they're not just a matter of a, a one-time emergency, uh, a full, uh, I believe it was a fourth of those cost burden renters had been cutting back on food for over a year. Uh, so that has pretty profound detrimental effects on those households that can extend uh, for years. It has an impact on, on their children, their children's educational opportunities, as well as their health, um, both physical and mental. Uh, it has um, an effect on uh, the opportunities they're able to take, whether they're able to uh, use those resources to um, move out of the neighborhood. Um, and just, I think, more generally, it, it's going to lead to much lower quality of life. I think second and, and connectedly, we know that cost-burdened renters are likelier to experience housing instability. Uh, when households are severely housing cost-burdened from month to month, there's just very little room to pare back expenses further when there is an emergency. Uh, so even a, a brief interruption in employment income, like a, a two-week furlough or um, a loss of a, a temporary job, uh, can render households unable to make their payments. 
So the widespread prevalence of severe housing cost burdens among extremely low-income households, I think it gives us additional reason to be particularly concerned about low-income renters uh, in 2020. Those are such important points, Dan, and and I think you know when when we look at uh, when we look at 2020 and, and the pandemic, I think you know that only exacerbates this, right? Can can we talk about uh, some of those impacts that you've seen, uh, and maybe we can take a look at it in in terms of how you process this information uh, from the the gap report with the pandemic in mind? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think in, in part. Because from a research perspective, of course, it will take time before we see the full economic fallout uh, from COVID. But there have been plenty of warning signs that this crisis will have a pronounced impact on lower income households. We started producing estimates of what the need might be at the, uh, the beginning of the pandemic last spring, uh, because as, as early as uh, April of 2020, we had results from the Pew Research Center that were suggesting that over half of all lower income households had already experienced some loss of employment income. Our own analysis of the American Community Survey showed us that the industries that extremely low income renters were most likely to be working in were some of the industries that were most vulnerable. Uh, during the pandemic, like retail, restaurants, and bars. We've gotten some further evidence uh, over the course of 2020 and into 2021 about the extent to which the lowest income households have been uh, most impacted by the pandemic. I I think some recent analysis from the Economic Policy Institute found that 80% of the the 9.6 million net jobs lost in 2020 were held by workers in the, the bottom wage quartile. And of course, the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey has pretty consistently shown that lower income renters and renters of color more generally are were more likely to be behind on rent and not confident about future payments. While that share uh, who are behind has, has tapered a little bit since January, uh, the share who report they are still behind is, is still alarmingly high at something like 15% of all renters. We don't know yet. Um, or don't have good comprehensive data on how far behind uh, renters have fallen. But the uh, work we do in the gap, I think, sets some expectations about uh, just how many renters might be at risk, given how many were already severely housing cost burdened before the pandemic. Of course, uh, for the coalition, uh, one vital source of data about the the scope of the need Uh, And the challenges that renters are facing has come through my colleagues' study of uh, emergency rental assistance programs. Good. Yeah. And that that point, uh, Dan, about the the rental assistance uh, is really vital. And and, uh, as you mentioned, you all have have put together some uh, really great work on on this. Uh, A couple of reports uh, stood out, and and I'll name them for reference. you know, I, I think maybe one of the, the first ones was a COVID-19 emergency rental assistance analysis of a national survey of programs that came out in January. Um, and then a follow-up, uh, learning from emergency rental assistance programs, lessons from 15 case studies. Uh, so I have read both of these reports uh, and, and have relied on them. So uh, Rebecca, I know this is a lot of your work, so I uh, would really love to, to dig into uh, you know, how you went about this and, and what you were finding. 
Yeah, sure. Thank you. <laughs> you know, this is really, it's, it's kind of an interesting time to be studying this because there are an unprecedented number of emergency rental assistance programs um, being stood up, um, not just from the Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Program, but also kind of through last year, which um, the reports that you referenced are, are based on. And it was, you know, really important for us and our research partners to look at this because it's really just nothing, nothing like this has really been done before. And it's, I, we thought there would be a lot of valuable lessons learned from, from these programs. So I can talk a little bit about some of the research that we've done. So we conducted a survey of emergency rental assistance program administrators across the U.S. last fall. Um, we asked folks to identify key decisions in their program design and implementation. Um, and we asked folks to respond to questions about program challenges and outcomes. And from that information, we were able to compare different key program character characteristics to program outcomes and challenges and learned that jurisdictions that partnered with local nonprofits were particularly effective at getting funds to renters in need. Um, we also learned that burdensome application requirements or excessive application requirements, um, especially proof of COVID-19 income loss, which is a, a fairly common requirement that we saw through the, the survey, were associated with issues of incomplete applications um, and likely slowed program administrators down. So that one thing that, that stands out, and, and I want to get into those two points more, but just, just to be clear, you interviewed uh, or surveyed over 200 administrators, but that's not even all of the programs in the country, right? Um, so can we just get a quick lay of the land? Like how many programs are there and at what level do they operate? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. And thank you for asking that. It's, it's pretty... There are, so the National Income Housing Coalition is tracking all the programs that are opening up. As of two days ago, we were tracking over 800 programs. Um, so this includes programs that had opened last year. And this also includes the new programs from the Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Um the Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Program is uh, pretty pretty unique in that there are nearly 700 grantees. So you see states that are implementing, you see uh, localities with um, populations above 200,000 um, implementing. We're also seeing tribal governments and territories implementing emergency rental assistance programs. So there is really a wide range of different levels of government um, involved and in administering this. A lot of administrators 
are working with nonprofits to implement and serve these different service populations. Got it. So, so Treasury sets the um, broad parameters of the program, manages the uh, rollout of the the funds uh, to all these uh, lower level administrators, who then connect those funds with people in need. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Um, yes, that is, that is a fair assessment. So, so then when when we look at all all of the these programs, you, you started to get into. Uh, into some of the lessons. So what are the, some of the, the different ways that you saw uh, these programs uh, you know, help those in need? How, how did they implement it a little bit differently? And then, then we can do a little bit of comparison, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want, I do want to clarify that the research that we did was um, before the treasury emergency rental assistance program. So those programs were quite different in that in that jurisdictions were, you know, choosing to devote a certain amount of their um, CARES Act funds or other um, state or local funds that they had available to them to emergency rental assistance. So there was really a, a broad diversity in terms of program design as well as how those programs worked. The new, relatively newer treasury emergency rental assistance programs have some more um, parameters um, that the treasury has more clearly spelled out. So I just wanted to kind of make that distinction before we jump into talking about some of the, the variety of programs that are that exist. Oh, thank you for that. That is an important distinction. And, and maybe as one way to jump into it, I was, I think it's interesting always to consider that there's, um, there's folks who own the properties, the landlords involved, and there's obviously the tenants involved and that these programs can, you know, need to, uh, kind of determine, uh, what the best connection point is and is it one, is it the other, is it both? So how have you found um, uh, that that's worked in the different programs? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so a lot of the programs we've seen took, I would say, a tenant-facing approach where tenants, you know, they would do outreach, um, get tenants to initiate the application, um, if the application is, uh, you know, validated by the program, then the program reaches out to the landlord to make payment. Um, you know, there are a couple of exceptions to this. And one of the ways we were seeing some programs um, innovate was by doing more targeted outreach with certain kinds of properties or certain kinds of landlords um, that were serving uh, renters that were likely to be low income and um, likely to work in um, impacted industries. So for example, in King County, program administrators there learned that their housing market was quite unique in that 
a number of low-income renters who were in the restaurant industry tended to live in large apartment complexes um, in certain zip codes. And so they designed part of their program to really target landlords of those large apartment complexes to do bulk applications, um, work with um, the landlords to to get all elg- uh, to get all um, tenants in their buildings to um, apply, see if they qualify, and do kind of a bulk payment to the landlord. So that's kind of one approach we've seen um, in a couple of places, and I think that's something we're seeing more of with the Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Program. Um, due to the you know sheer sheer amount of funding that needs to go out relatively quickly and the need for doing some really uh, targeted outreach and um, application processing uh, the the variation uh, you know across markets and, and even within markets and across industries is just uh, you know astounding and, and uh, how much needs to be thought through. Uh, to make this effective, uh, so you, you were seeing in your uh, in your follow up report the the learning from emergency rental assistance programs. You know a lot where um, I think organizations did you know, uh, make changes along the way and, and find ways to be more effective. Uh, can we talk through an example or two there? Yeah, a number of programs as they went through the pandemic they changed the way they would accept documentations, either uh, asking tenants to have fewer documents, allowing for self-attestation, or allowing a wider range of documents. Um, And there are a number of reasons that programs did this, but really a lot of program administrators were telling us that they were having a difficult time um, getting the the documents that are classically required by other housing programs um, that are a little bit more stringent. So documenting income, documenting unemployment um, is a couple of examples. Um, one of the program administrators uh, that spoke to us talked about how they even called up their local social security office in hopes that they would be able to kind of um, share data or get some uh, a direct connection to get the, the documents needed. But it was really difficult because people were no longer working in their offices. People were working at home. Um, tenants would physically go to the social security office and be kind of out of luck without um, another place to, to look for for that documentation. Um, so that's kind of one example. Um, another example is that there are a number of people who are working in the gig economy and a common um, documentation requirement that programs asked for was some sort of proof of uh, COVID-related income loss. And 
it's really difficult to establish what your take home income is on a regular basis if you're working in the gig economy and showing that COVID caused that loss. And there are a number of people who are impacted by this. So I, I, what all, all I'm trying to say is that there are a number of circumstances where program administrators are finding that tenants were really struggling and having a hard time um, getting the documents that programs asked for. It, it, it strikes me in, in all this that uh, they're also able to adapt pretty quickly, and which might be a little bit of a theme of, of the pandemic. I mean, so many around the country had had to adapt quickly to things. But but uh, yeah, I mean, that really struck me from from your research. You know, it's I, I think that most listeners, even even you know, our listeners who are so um, current on on a lot of these topics would probably be surprised to hear that there's 800 programs and that is just remarkable and, and I think of um, from a tenant perspective as 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 somebody's looking for what's available to them um, how do these how do these programs find the people in need or how do the people in need find the programs are, are there issues with that oh there are so many issues and you know there, I think that the the pandemic is it has caused a lot of changes for kind of both program administrators as well as tenants. Um, I think that the kind of old school way of seeking out assistance, um, gathering documents for assistance, and applying it for assistance really relied a lot on in person. Um, transactions and, um, you know, getting help from another human being in the same room um, to fill out certain parts of the application or understand certain parts of the application or even um, learning about the available assistance. Um, And so there have been a lot of changes and a lot of programs have been moving towards um, having some sort of online portal or platform for tenants to navigate and um, get their uh, get access to a, a rental assistance application. Um, but there is also a really huge digital divide and folks are catching up, but there are still people who do not have computers in their homes. So programs have to have um, mobile friendly applications. Um, even then, I think that the, the strongest programs that we've seen really um, engage with on the ground outreach. Um, so a lot of programs are partnering with locally embedded nonprofits, community groups, um, reaching out to different ways that people access information. Um, you know, I think that a lot of programs are using social media and mainstream news channels, but the mo- the people who are most vulnerable may not be accessing those. 
um, more mainstream sources of information and prefer to get news from their church or their community group with whom they already have a relationship. Um, so all, all of which is to say that some of the best tactics that programs can use to reach tenants is to work through these channels um, to reach distressed renters. You know, it occurs to me a little bit, you know, one might think like, why not just go to the landlords? Um, and, you know, it, that that's sort of the first thought that might come to mind. But, you know, I, I think back to one of our earlier episodes uh, where we covered uh, DIY landlords, as, as we call them on the episode, those who are not, you know, large institutional players, but maybe have a couple properties, maybe they're smaller properties, and how 52% of renters live in properties with uh, smaller landlords, not in the institutional space. So I think that really underscores just how hard this is and, and how how many different uh, different channels are, are required. Did you see a difference in, in approaches with um, with administrators reaching out to landlords versus uh, tenants or, or any lessons from that? Yeah, and I, I think that I, I want to pick up on the on the DIY landlords. They're I, I, there, we've been hearing that um, that a lot of uh, Treasury ER emergency rental assistance programs are um, facing challenges with landlord participation, um, and a lot of the programs that we talked to for. Um, the, the case studies, as well as programs that we surveyed, were referencing the fact that landlords also need significant education and outreach about programs, especially DIY landlords. Um, I think that corporate landlords may be more aware of or have research, more resources to um learn about emergency rental assistance programs and work with those programs. But um, landlords that have just one property may not really be familiar with any federal housing programs, um, may be skeptical, may think that this is a scam. Um, So there really needs to be a lot of education and um, awareness building and you know, I mentioned the digital divide earlier. Landlords also face the digital divide. So some programs that we've talked to um, really went out of their way to also help landlords fill out their part of the application um, because technology is hard. (laughs) (laughs) So are are there some places that, um, you know, not just within the individual programs, but just you know, if a landlord or if a tenant wants to go somewhere to find some direction as, as to what to do next, is there some consolidated set of information or at least a place to go to start? Yeah, so I think that for tenants looking for emergency rental assistance programs in their area, a really good place to start is by calling two-on-one, which will usually have um, a num- they'll, they'll be in touch with local resources that are available. Um, our website, www.nlhc.org, 
also has a rental assistance um, kind of landing page where tenants can find out if there are programs in their area. Um, And the Consumer Finance uh, Protection Bureau also has some resources to um, educate both tenants and landlords about what's going on with uh, Treasury Emergency Rental Assistance Programs. That's right. The uh, I, certainly, um, uh, I'm I'm you know, learning a lot today about uh, just how many programs are out there and how many, and, and even beyond that, how how d- difficult it can be to connect in with them. So it's great to hear that there's resources, and it's also you know been fantastic to hear again, um, you know, just the clarity that we can see on the need in the rental market, and I think. You know, we'll just quote another number from the GAP report is you know, the the three or four, you know, low income households that were in need of rental assistance um, before the pandemic um, were not receiving it. And uh, and now you think about that coming into uh, those households coming into a situation of a greater stress. Uh, it's great to hear that there's a lot of programs out there and I'm hopeful that they can connect up. And, and hopefully this discussion today has helped everybody understand the multitude of issues involved. So uh, thank you uh, um, to uh, to you both, Dan and, and Rebecca, for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.